You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. You can feel the tension in the air. It's that time of year again when kings go out to war. There's always a sense of dread and anticipation for this moment. They realize that this is a part of their life, yet it is a part of their life that they never get used to. When they send their king and they send his army out to fight the enemy. A way that they would prepare their hearts for this is they would gather in the temple. And they would gather in the temple before the king and his army would go out to war and they would sing a song. And the song usually consisted of a prayer and a a testimony. This psalm that we're looking at today, Psalms 20, is that kind of psalm. It's, It's known as a royal psalm. So it's a psalm that people would sing and as they would prepare to send their king and his men out to war. This psalm is written in anticipation of war. So it's, uh, you can feel the tension. You can feel the, the, the rising of the anxiety in the temple area as they're about to send their king and his army out to war again. This psalm is a royal psalm. A royal psalm is a psalm that emphasizes God's promises to David as he has promised David that his kingdom would be a forever kingdom. And so I want to help us understand Psalms 20. And in order to help us understand it, I think we need to understand that there are three threads of interpretation for Psalms 20. The first is this idea that this psalm was written in light of King David and his men that were going to war. So the kingdom of David, we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16 where God makes this promise to David. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means you you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come up from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is speaking of his son, Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And Jesus makes, or God makes this statement, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, that's interesting, right? Why was he promising this kingdom that would last forever? Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. 
your throne shall be established forever. So as we're reading Psalms 20, we're reading it in light of the fact that David's is the king and God is establishing his kingdom. So we read it through that lens. But he makes that interesting statement that his kingdom is going to last forever. So this Psalms 20 is not just about David's kingdom. This Psalms 20 is pointing us to another king who would come, the king of kings, and his name is Jesus. So we not only see Psalms 20 in light of King David and him going to war, but we see it also in light of King Jesus. Go with me to John chapter 18. So the way that he is going to establish his kingdom forever is through the line of David. So if you want to know how that works out, go read Matthew chapter 1 and read through the genealogies and you will find David in that line. So this is how he's going to establish his kingdom forever. It's going to end up with Jesus coming. And as Jesus is coming to the end of his life in John chapter 18 and verse 33, he's standing before Pilate. And he's about to be crucified for our sins. He's about to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. So he's standing before Pilate here and he says, Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it about me? So he's trying to see if Pilate believes that Jesus is the king of Jews. So he's like, are you saying this because you believe I'm the king of the Jews? Or are you saying this because people around you are saying it? Pilate responds, I am a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, and here's where we get Jesus' kingdom that will last forever. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is Jesus saying? He's saying to Pilate, yes, I am the king of the Jews, but your heart's not ready to receive that or to believe that. And so we translate or we, we interpret Psalms 20, not only through the lens of King David, but we also translate it through the greater king that was coming through Jesus' kingdom. So then it comes to us today, then how do we translate it for our lives today? Well, I think we translate it, and I believe from my study that we translate it with the future kingdom in view. If you remember Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. Well, if you, as you read commentaries on that, what you find is many believe that is the constitution for the kingdom of heaven, the constitution for the kingdom of God. So if you want to know what it looks like for us to be under the rule and reign of God, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's what life will look like under his rule and reign. But remember in Matthew chapter 6, what he says we're to pray. When he says we pray, and we call it the Lord's prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer because he's teaching his disciples to pray. He says we're to pray what? Thy kingdom come, thy will come be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we, as God's people, are anticipating a kingdom that is to come. 
And so we interpret Psalms 20 in light of God's kingdom that is to come, Jesus' kingdom that is to come, his second coming. Let me help you see this from the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24. Paul says, then comes the end when Jesus returns. When he delivers the kingdom of the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. And the verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So you and I are living in this tension of the already not yet. Christ rules and reigns in our hearts now, but one day Christ is going to set up his, his rule and reign over creation, over the earth, over all the world. And so we're anticipating that day. So we read Psalms 20 in light of that. Here's how Christopher Ash in his commentary on Psalms says it. Psalms 20 now expresses for us this deep longing for the final victory of Jesus. This psalm, church, helps loosen our grip on this world. It reminds us that our kingdom is not of this world. To be honest with you, I listened to a few messages on Psalms 20 from other preachers And when I listened to them, they interpreted it in light of the current situation we find ourselves in. And I would say that they misinterpreted Psalms 20 because he's not talking about the here and now, he's talking about the what is to come. That we are anticipating the kingdom of God that is to come. As Peter says, we are sojourners and exiles in this world. We are refugees in a country that is not our own. And so we don't allow our roots to get too deep in this world because we know this is temporary. We know that our king will return. And so we translate this psalm with these different threads. They all are wrapped up in Jesus, right? They all point us to Jesus, but we see it through this lens. So here's the outline of how they would have sang this song. In verses one through five, in verse nine, they prayed for, the people prayed for the king. So they brought their request before the Lord and they prayed for the king in the temple area as they were getting ready to head to war. And then in verses six through eight, they give testimony of the people about their God. The people declare a testimony about who God is as they're sending out their men, their king into war. The focus of this prayer and testimony is to help the king win the victory, but that's the focus, and they believe the victory will come. So the focus of the psalm, the prayer is help the king to have the victory. The testimony is they believe that the victory will come. So let's look at Psalms 20, one through nine together. First, we'll look at the prayer of the people for the king. It says this in verse one, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protects you. 
I love that the people go boldly right into the throne of grace and say, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Listen, all God's people got troubles, right? Even the king that God has anointed to lead the people has troubles. They know that as he goes to war, that he's going to face trouble. They know that he is going to come upon situations that he's going to need the Lord's help. And so they pray, Lord, would you answer the king? Would you answer his men in the day of trouble? When we think about the life of Jesus, did Jesus have trouble? Oh yeah, Jesus had trouble. He hung on a cross. That's trouble, right? He, he had trouble. And so he could go to his father and pray, Lord, answer me in the day of my trouble. And then he says, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Uh, the people were basically shrinking down Exodus 3 verse 6 when they would talk about God being the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So what he's doing here is he's reminding God of his faithfulness. He's, he's saying, I want you, God, to, to protect them, and I want you to protect them as you have protected Abraham. As you have protected Isaac, as you have protected Jacob, so protect the king as he goes to war. The people prayed for victory through the protection of God. Verse 2, they said, they prayed, may he send your, you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. The people prayed not only for protection, they prayed for help and support. This prayer reminded them of where the help and support comes from. Look at what it says. The help comes from the sanctuary and the support comes from Zion. What, what is it pointing us to? It's pointing us to God. That God is ultimately where our help and support come from. What is our greatest enemy in our lives? Where does our greatest help and support come from? Our greatest enemy is death. Why? Because death separates us from the presence of God forever in a place called hell. And God sent us help and support from Zion, from the sanctuary, through his son, Jesus Christ, who stepped in our place and died in our place so that we don't have to fear being separated from God because of Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have help and support for your greatest enemy today, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. He goes on in verse 3 and says, May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. They would seek the favor of God before they would go out to war by bringing offerings and sacrifices to God. We often think of offerings and sacrifices as a way to appease God, as a way to uh, be a substitute for their sin, but they would also bring these sacrifices as a way to ask for God's favor. In, in essence, what they were saying is, we want to be reminded of why we're going to war. It's not for me as the king and for my name. It's ultimately for the name of God. And so we come before God to present our offerings and our sacrifices as a means to say we are submitting ourselves to your kingship. We are devoting ourselves to you. We are saying we are, are your servants. We are doing this battle for you. It reminds me of Paul's words to the Romans in Romans 12, 1, where he says, I beseech you, 
brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That we as God's people should present ourselves to the King of Kings as submitting and devoting ourselves to him and to his will and to fulfill his plans. And they're saying, God, remember that. Remember that David and his, his army have submitted themselves to you as they go into war. Then verse four, he, they pray that may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now this verse reminds us that they had to be talking about someone else other than King David, right? Because what do we know about King David? King David had a wicked heart, just like all of us. He was born, he would say this of himself, he was born in sin. And so if you know somebody's born in sin and that they have a wicked heart, you don't necessarily want to pray that they'll grant all their heart's desires and all their plans will be fulfilled, right? I don't know that anybody has prayed for our president to have all his desires fulfilled and all of his plans fulfilled, right? Whether Democrat or Republican, we don't ever pray that. Because what do we know? We know that their hearts are desperately wicked. So what this reminds us of and what it reminded the people of is there had to be a better Messiah coming. There had to be someone whose desires and plans were right and good. And we know this was pointing us to Jesus, right? That his heart's desires and his plans should be fulfilled because he was pure. He was virgin born. There was no sin found in him. And so, in essence, we were, he, they were praying for the coming of the Messiah that all of his heart's desires would be fulfilled and his plans would be fulfilled. Verse 5, they pray, may we shout for joy over your salvation. That You could translate that, may we shout for joy over your victory. And in the name of God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. They're praying here for victory. God, bring victory. We, we want to see the king and, his king and his army come back so that we can shout for joy over their victory, so that we can set up our banners. What's this idea of banners? The idea of banners is they would set up these banners and it would declare that they had victory. So you'd go overtake a, a country, you'd go overtake a people, and you would set up banners, and it was a way for people when they would come by to say, oh, they own that, right? They've won the victory in that battle. Here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of a quote that Pastor Todd says in our office as we're thinking about Chiefs, uh, the season beginning to start here and watching all of that go on. Pastor Todd always says this, we'll come in and, and we are usually are talking about the Chiefs after a game and, and specifically when they come from behind. And we're talking about how, man, it's just incredible. I can't believe we came back, all that kind of stuff. And Pastor Todd will always say this, as long as we've got number 15, we got a shot, right? What is Pastor Todd doing? He's raising the banner of Patrick Mahomes, right? He's saying, as long as we've got Patrick Mahomes, we've got a shot. We've got a chance at victory. And here's the deal, church. As long as we have Jesus in us, as long as we have the king of kings on our side, we can raise the banner that we have victory through him. That he is our victory. And so no matter what battle you're facing today, you have victory in Jesus Christ. 
Because your greatest enemy is death. There's nothing greater in your life that can dog your steps than death. And we know that because all of us have a day coming when we'll step in to the last day on our calendar and we will die. But listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 or verse 56 and verse 57 says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory and who, how does he give us the victory? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we raise the banner of Jesus Christ. He is our king and we have the victory through him. Verse nine, they finish as they started the prayer. Oh Lord, save the king. Oh Lord, give the king victory. May he answer us when he called. What's interesting about the people praying for the king is this is what they understood. The king represented the people and their life was bound up in his life. So if the king goes to battle, and wins the war, who wins the war with him? The people win the war, right? If the king goes to battle and loses the war, who loses the war? The people lose the war. And so they're praying for the king because they know that their life is wrapped up in him. Because of Jesus came and conquered death and the devil and sin, we can now have victory through him because our life is wrapped up in him. Because he had victory on the cross, we can have victory over the things in our life as we anticipate his final victory over death. As David and his men were heading out to war, this song they would sing as a prayer in the temple pointing to a greater king who would come and win the ultimate victory over sin, Satan, and death. Now we as God's people pray this prayer as we anticipate his return. Then they move from singing this prayer to singing and giving testimony about their God. Look at verses six through eight. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, that he will answer him from his holy heaven, that he will save with the saving of the might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now picture with me, they've just prayed for the king and his, king and his men. Now they're giving testimony to who their God is. You, you can imagine the picture is of a, a, a team that's gathered in the locker room and they're with their coach and their coach is giving them a pep talk, right? Because he's sending them out to go play the game. He's sending them out to war. And this is what's happening here. They're praying over them, yes, praying for protection, praying for help, praying for support. But now they move into, I want to remind you of who you are in Christ, right? I want to remind you of who God is. And they say, now I know. Can you say in your life, now I know of God? I love it because their mind must have went back to what happened to them in the land of Egypt. You, you remember what happened to them in the land of Egypt? As they're fleeing the land of Egypt and all of a sudden chariots and horses start coming after them and they come to the Red Sea and they're between a rock and a hard place. 
And now they could say, I know, I have seen the salvation of the Lord. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They're going back, they're remembering, they're saying, now I know. And as these men are getting ready to go out to war, as King David is getting ready to go to war, he's being reminded of God's faithfulness. Now I know. Now I know that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Now I know that neither death nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now I know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now I know that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you have a testimony that says, now I know? I love the confidence. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. And one of my favorite verses in all of scripture is verse seven, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They went to war with chariots and horses. And here's what would happen. What's really neat about this is it's, it's the idea of some trust is some proclaim. So here's what you would do. It, it's like getting around the water cooler and trying to one-up each other, right? So they would get around the water cooler or the well, let's just say that. And as they're talking about that, the well, they would say, well, I've got 5,000 chariots and 2,000 horses, I've got this. And so what they were trying to do is say, I've got, I'm better than you are. And they say, when the children of Israel would stand around the water cooler, when they would stand around the well, they wouldn't talk about their chariots or horses. They would talk about the name of the Lord, their God. Do you have that kind of trust in the Lord? You can have your chariots, you can have your horses, but we're gonna trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Why? Because we're living for a kingdom not of this world. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 as we fight our battle here on earth. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, chariots and horses, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What is he saying? Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And as we fight our little battles here on earth, as we're anticipating the battle to come, we have victory through Jesus Christ. As we wait for our King Jesus to return, the focus of our prayers and testimonies is that God would help us and help Jesus to have victory and we believe that he will have victory because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This kind of confidence can only come if we truly know the king, if we truly know Jesus. If you know who you're fighting for, your confidence grows. Do you know Jesus? Do you really 
know Jesus. As I was thinking about this message and the idea that it is pointing us to a future kingdom when Jesus will rule and reign, I thought about a clip that I'd seen on YouTube and I've shared it with our church family before. So I went out and watched it again and I thought, you know, I've shared this before. I probably shouldn't share it again. But as the week went on, it's like, I, I don't know that I can say it any better. I don't think I could say it any better than the way this pastor, Dr. Lockridge, a great preacher of the past, described our king. And he describes him in such a way that stirred my heart and And it just, it lit a fire in my soul. And so I thought if it did that for me, I want you to hear it today. I want you to be reminded of who our king is. And that yes, he has won the victory. And yes, we anticipate his return, but we got to know him if we're going to have confidence in him. And so I want you to listen to Dr. Lockridge as he helps remind us who our king is, who this king of kings is. And as we anticipate the return and final victory of our king, I pray that we will be able to say, as Dr. Lockridge says in this video, that's my king. Watch this. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. David said the heavens declare the glory of God. And the fundament showeth his handiwork. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soulless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, 
My king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's a captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forever, then amen. Amen. That's my king. Let's go to war this week, amen? With that in mind, that that's our king. And we have the victory through Jesus Christ. And let's live as victorious people this week. Father, thank you for being our king. Man, we love you. You are so good. We pray that all your desires and all your plans would be fulfilled. We pray, Lord, that as we go to war, that you would protect us and help us as you promised through Jesus. And Lord, may we go from this place with the confidence of now I know 
Some are gonna trust in chariots. Some are gonna trust in horses this week. But we as your people, as kingdom, as citizens of your kingdom, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In Jesus' name. And we said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.